Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the asset management business is certainly facing meaningful headwinds to its business, including the move to passive management and pressure on fees as it looks for additional areas of growth. To help us get up to speed on what is going on with the asset management business, we're pleased to welcome Suni Harford. She is the head of investments for UBS Asset Management. She joins us here live in New York. Suni, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we know about fee pressures. We know about the move to passive. What are the big challenges that you're facing right now at UBS? Well, I think they're not unique to UBS. I think the entire industry, as you say, Paul, is going through a massive shift and change in how we deliver value to our clients, the transparency that is apparent in delivering that value, um, and the opportunities. So fortunately, demographics and some of the the world um, tailwinds, if you will, in terms of the number of retirees, the fact that 60% of um, retirees say that they will have to invest and live on their investment proceeds as opposed to their portfolios themselves, going forward. There's a tremendous amount of money that will need to be managed um, and opportunities for asset managers to add value to their clients. Headwinds against us, of course, are the transparency and the passive products that are there delivering what in the last decade has been really terrific returns. But I would suggest that the volatility that we're seeing now, um, the change in uh, the demand for alternative products, for example, the interest in markets like China, where passive doesn't do nearly as well, where you need some real expertise, provide opportunities for those asset managers are going to be prepared to take advantage and bring those skills to bear. How far along in this consolidation are we? That's a great question. Um, I probably in the fourth inning, if I use a baseball analogy, right? I think we've got a ways to go, but I think who is going to survive and who the winners are is not as simple as the assets under management. Okay, so that's my question. What will the asset management industry look like, say, 10 years from now, if we're in the fourth inning of investment firms consolidating? I think... Those that change to go with the market uh, and can affect real change in their technology and their use of data, overstated statement, but it's still a true one, um, I think will survive. But those that really don't think they need to change and they can stick with the status quo might not be here. I don't think it's as simple as saying a trillion dollars assets under management is that scalability and that level that you need to be at. I think you can have a boutique firm that focuses, say, on alternatives or focuses on the illiquid products that so many are demanding right now. Uh, I think if you can deliver solutions, multi-asset, where you can pull out beta, do that very cost-effectively for a client so they don't go elsewhere for that and then add an active overlay or a derivative overlay, something to specific to their outcome uh, demands or where their solution for their problem happens to be, those are going to survive. But that's very, very different than what the traditional asset manager is doing today. So what is, in your mind, what the traditional asset manager is doing today? Presuming that their money can come in and stay, that they don't have to be competitive on fees, that they don't have to do anything different than what a passive can do for them, um, I think is problematic because at some point when the fees are as high as they have been historically, um, if you can get close to that, you don't have to worry just about outperformance. You're not just trying to beat the passive index. You've got to do more than that to 
you know, make sure that you're getting your fee uh, and you're earning your fee, if you will. And I think the, the onslaught of technology where so many individual investors, even institutional investors, can do a lot of this stuff on their computer and they can play with ETFs and they can play with passive products to build portfolios themselves. There's a lot of uh, intelligence, if you will, available to these folks now. You have to do something different and it has to be the unique brain power maybe of your investment teams to deliver something they can't do on their own. Just to uh, stick with some of the things that have been in the news recently, we talk about some of the big tech companies that have come under uh, scrutiny, both by regulators and individuals worried about privacy concerns. As head of investments overseeing $634 billion, have you personally pressured anyone or would you change allocations as a result of some of these regulatory issues? I have not. I, I have a really good team, and I'm going to let them allocate as they see fit. But I will suggest there's a short-term view on tech, which would be around things like the regulation and whatnot. And then there's the long-term view. Technology is where the world is going. Everything that isn't tech-driven is going to be. I have three children heading into college. I hope they all study computer science and math and right. programming. Glad my son played well at Minecraft, right? <laughs> we need to be focused on tech. So um, that the long-term play is to be, to be into that sector and into it big. Uh, but you have to pick and choose. And I think there's timing, and that is one of the, the dynamic natures of what you do in active management, is figuring out how to play. I mean, Google, no one would have seen that coming necessarily. Long term, would you be a, a, blue, uh, a, a Google buyer? Of course you would. But should you be coming in and out based on the things that are hitting it as an industry in the meantime? Absolutely. SUNY Harford, I wish we had an hour with you. Thank you so much for being <laughs> with us. Thanks for having me. It was, it was great fun. to talk to you guys. SUNY Harford is head of investments at UBS Asset Management, overseeing $634 billion, talking about some of the massive changes underway in the investment management industry. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Invest New York Conference at the company's headquarters here at 731 at Lexington. A big question hanging over all of the attendees here is what is going on with trade? Why are we seeing uh, such tensions rising at this point and escalating at this moment in time? I am so pleased to welcome somebody who worked with the World Bank for many years, somebody who worked at JP Morgan uh, and founded her own firm. We're talking about Asfana Beshlas, and she is founder and chief executive officer of Rock Creek Group, joining us here. Uh, Asana, it's really interesting to me that these trade tensions are ramping up now. Why? I think it's very interesting what you said. Uh, just historically, I was teaching international trade a long time ago at Oxford, many, many years ago, and I was still a student. And it, the theory of trade was about comparative advantage, that we all sell goods to each other based on comparative advantage and the world will be a better place, where we are in a very different place today. And I think what has been really interesting is how in the last 20 years, China has um, basically been incredibly smart in taking advantage of trade laws to grow its economy and its trade with the rest of the world. Now where we are today, is a world where um, China has uh, a lot of unilateral um, advantages one way. Uh, and therefore, I think we look at the U.S. right now and a lot of the press is about the U.S.-China uh, trade war. But if you look at it, that same sort of quiet war is going on in Europe. It's going on in emerging markets where really the same issues are in existence. And so... Uh, it's the one topic that seems to be unifying the world against China. 
Yes. What do you think China is really looking for as they sit down with the United States or not sit down right, right, right now in terms of trade? Um, what do you think is realistic from China's perspective that they want to get from the U.S.? I think China would, in an ideal world, do things the way they have been doing for a long time, which is make the right sounds, make the right noises, imply that they're going to agree, but continue with uh, the way they have always done things, which is their way. And it doesn't and appear that that's, that, is the, that can be the status quo any longer. It exactly. Like I think they tried that in the last meeting and that did not work. I think also trade seems to be covering also intellectual property rights, which is sort of a huge topic, obviously, for the U.S., uh, and, but it's kind of subsumed. When we talk about trade, I think that a lot of the discussions that are going on between the leaders in, uh, in China and the U.S. is about that topic as well. So your background is fascinating because you've advised central bankers and uh, foreign ministers. You've invested assets on behalf of the World Bank. And I'm wondering if there's an irony baked in to these trade tensions, that the more they heat up, the more likely it is that central banks will cut rates, and that'll be great for emerging markets. It'll be great uh, for riskier assets on a longer period of time. What do you say to that argument? Um, I think we are now at the point in the, um, in the U.S. economy where it might be too early to, uh, to start cutting rates, um, given where we are with employment and uh, given where we are with the rest of our economic growth. Recession is a possibility. We're starting sl to slow down. Uh, but as we heard also this morning from uh, Governor Powell, he is being very careful. He's watching the same thing everybody else is watching. And he did not, I, at least I didn't hear him commit one way or another. He was very careful in what he said. I think a lot of what the market is thinking is that two rate uh, cuts in the U.S. are baked in. And uh, it seems to a lot of people, uh, you know, there is sort of a theory being floated out there. Why are we having these discussions about trade um, and having the tweets on Mexico, having, uh, having the trade war with Europe going on at the same time as with, um, with China? And would that be something that the president might be trying to get interest rates down a little faster? Because since the Fed is an independent uh, decision maker. But would lower rates, if the Fed does cut rates, will that be supportive of equities at this point in the credit cycle? It could in the very, very short run. But it's, I think if you're looking at um, why, um, why um, if you are a presidential candidate, you would want rates to be lower is that obviously it will impact equity markets, but also it's a very big positive marks for other things in industry and people who are hiring. Um, so it helps um, hiring policies. It helps uh, the broader investment in com by companies and, of course, um, equity markets, which are all interconnected one, and the, uh, one with the other. So, Afsana, is there any call here? I know your firm, uh, your new firm, Rock Creek Group, uh, has an interest in emerging markets. Yes. But given all the trade uncertainty, is it too risky to kind of go to emerging markets these days? I think emerging markets still are among the best places for value and for investing. The reason for that is that uh, two things. One is growth is fastest in emerging markets right now, whether we're looking at financial sector, energy sector, technology, etc. And a lot of the things that are holding us back here, you know, whether it's our infrastructure, whether it's our banking system, whether it's our payment systems that are very rigid and very old um, and um, very underdeveloped, when you go to emerging markets, they're setting all these things up. They're not just building roads. They're also setting up payment systems. So if their banks can be um, leapfrogging 
and jump ahead, uh, they will be very interesting. And there are actually very interesting places to invest, whether it is an education company in India uh, serving the rural poor, by the way, and making 20% returns. Right. Um, so I think what you will see in emerging markets is a move away from just uh, sort of a flow of assets into ETFs and much more looking for really good local companies yep. uh, that have potential for growth. Outstanding. Afsana Bashlas, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time here. Afsana is a founder and chief executive officer of Rock Creek Group, uh, joining us here live at Bloomberg. today, Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke and traders heard what they wanted to hear. He said uh, that he remained open uh, to anything that was necessary to support the economy. People took that as either a rate cut or holding steady. <laughs> Basically, markets had a little blip and then went back to where they were before. Here to parse through uh, all of the Fed speak we've been hearing and what that means for Fed rate cuts, Chris Lowe, Chief Economist for FTN Financial, joining us from New York. Chris, you have uh, almost three decades of experience watching the markets and listening to Fed officials. What do you take from Fed Chair Jerome Powell's uh, comments today that they remain open, that they're, they're watching, that they're paying attention, that they're listening to markets, uh, but ultimately the economic data is what's going to drive their decisions? Yeah, I, I, I think that nails it, really. Uh, most important thing is that the door at least is open to a discussion. I, I think the Fed's gotten into a funny place in the last couple of years where uh, they feel constrained in what they can do in these meetings based on their own commentary, which, uh, you know, establishes expectations for the meeting in advance. Uh, we're not expecting a rate cut in June because no one other than Jim Bullard is talking about the possibility. But, uh, you know, if you look at the yield curve, they're way behind the curve, like I've never seen in the 30 years I've been doing this behind the curve, uh, which means if they don't cut at this meeting, they'll have to cut at one of the next couple of meetings. And in the meantime, we heard from Jim, uh, from Charles Evans this morning. He's the Chicago Fed president, told CNBC, I just don't see what the market sees. And... Uh, you know, I, I think that pretty well sums it up. Uh, Although, I in fairness, Chris, I, I, I'm sorry, but it's really interesting no, because this is another instance where you can hear what you want to hear because Charles <laughs> Evans, Charlie Evans, he came out and he said, we're not seeing what the market's seeing, but the market may be signaling something important to us, so we're paying attention. I mean, again, you can take what you want to take from all of these comments. No, well, that, that's exactly right. But at the same time, how can they not see it? You know, one and a half percent inflation here, inflation falling in China, falling through Asia, falling in Europe, uh, Australia cutting rates this morning because of fallout from the China slowdown. The uh, global PMI, according to Bloomberg this morning, fell below 50 for the first time in years. Uh, you know, th there is a hard slowdown partly because of, uh, you know, the, the trade fight that's been ongoing for a couple of years. It's very unlikely we're going to get a resolution at the G20. Uh, and the Fed has sort of raised the bar, right? Uh, 
low inflation is no longer enough reason to cut rates. Mary Daly, uh, San Francisco Fed president, suggesting yesterday the bar is preventing recession, and she doesn't see a recession yet, so no need to cut. So, uh, so Chris, it, I mean, you know, one of the criticisms wonder, of this what, what Fed... What happened to the 2% inflation target? Right. So, I mean, so one of the criticisms of this Fed is that it has been beholden to the markets or being led by the markets. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Uh... No, uh, I, I think what, what's going on is they're behind the markets. So, for example, when Evan said, hey, you know, consumers are still in great shape. We, we had real income growth, X transfers in the first quarter of 0.1% at an annual rate. We had the weakest consumption since 2016. April retail sales were negative. What's great about that? Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, they're just not really paying attention. Uh, and, and as a result, they're not being led by the markets so much as the, the markets beating them over the head until they pay attention to the data. So, Chris, you know, you've been an incredibly accurate forecaster of where interest rates are going to go. And right now we're looking at the market pricing in an 88 percent chance that the Federal Reserve will cut by their September 18th meeting. I'm looking right now at a two year yield at one point nine one percent. Where do you see that two year yields going by year end? Well, you know, what's, what's really interesting is, is the move today when uh, Powell opened the door uh, as you said, to a discussion of the possibility of maybe thinking about it, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and we see the two-year yield is uh, eight basis points higher today. Uh, it, now, that, that's partly reflecting, you know, a 425-point rise in the Dow. But uh, both of those together, along with the move that you see in oil and gold, is the market saying, okay, at least they're thinking about it. That means recession risk is a little bit lower. Uh, I, I think if they do actually cut, then what, what we'll see is that market interest rates will start to rise. They probably have to cut 50 to effectively uh, move, move the market in, in a significant way. Uh, but I think 50 basis points this year now is, is a pretty reasonable expectation. Paul, it's so incredible. They'll cut rates, which will lead to higher rates. That, that's right. <laughs> well, so, and think about it. The refusal to cut is why rates are falling. So rates are low. So, so Chris, I mean, you know, they've been talking about that the low inflation that you mentioned earlier. The Fed is insisting that it's not real, that it's transitory. What do you think forms the basis of that argument? Well, uh, I, I think it's actually, on, on the face of it, it's kind of reasonable. What they do is they divide up all the thousands of components that go into the price measure into cyclical and acyclical things. Uh, the price declines this year are mostly acyclical. The problem with the logic is it falls apart if you look back. Uh, we, we've got seven years now with only one month at 2%. Everything else is below. And last year, the cyclical components fell uh, while the acyclical components rose. The average is running at about 175. The target is supposed to be symmetrical at two. So uh, I understand where Powell is coming from, but I think it, it, it's kind of a short-sighted uh, argument. Right. Chris Lowe, thank you so much for joining us. Chris is the chief economist for FTN Financial, uh, based in New York, joining us on, on the phone. 
Yesterday, the Nasdaq in particular was tumbling, and it wasn't because of trade concerns. It was because U.S. regulators were said to be setting their sights on big tech for possible antitrust lawsuits. Joining us now to discuss what those could potentially look like is Professor Chris Sagers. He is the professor at Cleveland State University, uh, focusing on the law. Uh, professor Sagers, thank you so much for joining us. You know, given your experience, what would a potential antitrust suit against Google or Facebook look like? Uh, yeah, hi. Thank you. Um, so uh, let me just say, first of all, I think everything is so hard to predict uh, in this news that's come out over the weekend. Um, you know, I've been watching this law for a long time, and it used to feel like the agencies were at least a little bit predictable. Uh, after the last couple of years with the Trump administration, I, I have found the agencies uh, uh, pr pretty inscrutable, pretty hard to say exactly what they're going to do or where they're heading. Um, on these cases, let's just say they do bring an antitrust case. I mean, I presume we're looking at what uh, in, in U.S. antitrust law we call uh, monopolization case, meaning uh, the government would sue Facebook or Google or another platform, claim that through unilateral conduct, just through its own uh, deliberate conduct to exclude uh, other competitors, it's gotten a monopoly position. Um, you, you know, the, uh, no, so far as I'm aware, nobody knows exactly what the government's theory against, uh, say, Google would be, but everybody's presuming it's the, the same theory that the FTC once looked at with respect to Google that the European Commission uh, looked at and actually found, uh, found a violation on, um, and that is that Google tweaks its search results to disadvantage its own competitors. So, Professor... Um, so I think that's what it's going to look like. Um, I don't think anybody could really say right now whether a lawsuit like that could win, uh, but probably most people agree that it's uh, somewhat unorthodox. It'd be a pretty, pretty tough row to hoe. So, Professor, one of the issues that I know investors are, are, are asking is just one of timing. It seems historically the U.S. regulators have taken a very light touch to uh, U.S. technology, whereas maybe some of the uh, European counterparts have been more aggressive. Why do you think we're getting so many calls from so many different areas within the, the U.S. to take a look at some of these big tech companies? Yeah, it, um, I mean, again, it's, it's kind of a mystery to me. I don't know what's going on. Um, I, I humbly believe that there may be a bit of an overreaction to news over the weekend. Um, you know, the government itself has not said that it's investigating anybody, that it's even begun an investigation. Um, and I, I'm just not sure what's going to happen. But there's, there's no obvious reason that uh, it should be these suits uh, now, uh, particularly given that this administration uh, really hasn't brought much antitrust enforcement against uh, anybody else. So, Professor Sagers, you've testified uh, extensively about antitrust cases in front of Congress and different regulatory authorities. What would you recommend? I mean, do you think there is a legitimate antitrust case uh, that could be made, uh, in particular, against Facebook or Google? I'm looking at Facebook shares today, uh, down an additional 1.7% after a 7.5% plunge yesterday. Yeah, uh, excellent questions. Um, I mean... I personally, first, I mean, the real answer to your question, I think, depends so much on what the evidence actually shows. Um, you, you know, it's, it's easy for all of us to look at uh, news reports and to, uh, you know, uh, judge these companies on what we think we know from reading the papers. Uh, but a case against these companies is going to depend so much on what's found in the details. 
Um, so I, I, I just don't know if, if these lawsuits should win or not. Um, I personally applaud the government. If, if it really is serious about doing this, which I think is uh, still an open question. Um, but assuming the government is, is um, serious, I applaud them for uh, trying to bring life back to our monopolization law, our law against unilateral conduct, which is almost completely unused in American law. Um, I think that um, if I had a criticism of the agencies, it would just be that um, if they're serious about enforcing the antitrust laws, there are a lot of targets out there that would have been easier cases, and the government government didn't take them. Um, again, I think the the Google search theory is going to be a tough road to hoe. Uh, any kind of claim against Facebook on U.S. antitrust law is probably going to be fairly challenging. Um, so I I applaud them, and I hope they go for it. I hope they find good stuff. At the very least, they ought to be investigating these companies, and if they find something, they should sue. Um, I'm not exactly sure why they picked these companies now. So, uh, Professor Sagers, one of the interesting things that I noticed was that it seems to be the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are kind of divvying up big tech. You take this company, I'll take that company yeah. to look at. It. How common is that? Uh, so it's, uh, it's, I mean, you know, deciding who's going to do what um, is very common, and it's, it's kind of necessary. Uh, but it comes up most often in the so-called merger review process. Uh, for, for technical reasons. It's a little unusual to see this negotiation where uh, they're slicing up a whole bunch of different companies that they're not even investigating yet, uh, or apparently aren't. So nobody knows exactly what's going on there. Um, but my personal guess is that the news that's been leaking, um, and again, I think it may be a little bit overblown, um, actually really just has to do with, with this initial turf turf division negotiation over over who's going to wear the badge um, and that really may be all that's happening here um, yeah. it, it may have been necessary for the agencies to do this because they happen to have been getting a lot of complaints um, uh, so um, but, Professor, it's interesting to me because, on one hand, it's going to take a long time for these regulators to actually push out any antitrust cases. On the other, we did see out of Apple, they already are making some changes to their iTunes platform and saying uh, that they're going to do other privacy uh, measures, take other privacy measures, in order yeah. to sort of get ahead of these. So how much will this shift business just in general because of the threat of regulatory action? Yeah, uh, could be serious. I mean, uh, you know... Apple's move, it's, I mean, it sounds like Apple uh, may have uh, changed Instagram, or um, I, I apologize, iTunes, um, uh, mainly just because that business is kind of petering out. I mean, music is going to streaming video. There have been a lot of complaints about um, iTunes over the years. Um, but, but who knows? I mean, I think that your suggestion is a good and correct one, that the co these companies are probably uh, being pretty careful. Um, they and they will be more careful perhaps now that there apparently is uh, serious government interest. Um, and w what that will mean, I think, is that they're going to talk to antitrust lawyers kind of a lot. Like whenever they're doing uh, significant new business policy changes, introducing new products or changing the way that their products uh, interact with other people's products, that sort of thing, anything that could be the basis of a claim of exclusion uh, probably they're going to get an antitrust lawyer to look at it. So, you know, more caution is, is likely, and, and I right. personally think that seems great. Chris Sagers, thank you so much. Uh, Chris is a James A. Thomas professor of law at Cleveland State University from lovely Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you so much uh, for being with us.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.